Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Why did the octopus go to battle? Why? Because he was well armed. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. That's the end of my career right there. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from actor Dev Patel. That'll break the ice. His career is clearly not ending as he's in two new movies this week, Chappie and The Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. We will talk to him later. Also, humorist Dave Barry is here and prepared to answer your etiquette questions. This is why I always carry a machete. Oh, my. Also coming up, Ali Spaltro, the musician known as Lady Lamb, uses our show to serenade her best friend. Mm. And I meet a real-life mustard sommelier. But of course. That's right. But <laughs> first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Hillary Clinton trying to quiet criticism of her use of a private email account. Peyton Manning is returning to play a fourth season with the Broncos. 100 million Americans are in the path of a storm bringing snow, ice, and rain. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Luke Burbank. He is the host of the daily podcast TBTL, which has joined our Infinite Guest Network. Luke, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, as a resident of the small maritime village of Port Townsend, Washington, I am ecstatic about something called the Race to Alaska, which is a boat race from Mm. here up to Ketchikan, which is 750 miles. There is a $10,000 first prize. Mm. And there's only one rule to this entire race. Yes. Okay. Never talk about the race. Wait, no, that's Fight Club. (laughs) The one rule is no motors. So you could build like a Viking... You know, mm-hmm. ship with 25 people rowing. You could build yeah. a sailboat. Anything you want as long as you don't have a motor. You could saddle a whale. That's, <laughs> is that legal? I hope. I think that that would probably get you in a certain amount of trouble, but that would be more with, like, PETA <laughs> yeah. or yeah. the yeah, local wow. marine biology community. Heidi Klum will come up to you on a jet ski and uh, <laughs> yeah. shut Throw you down. Throw a harpoon into you. Yeah. There is somebody, by the way, competing who's doing stand-up paddle boarding. Oh, my gosh. Well, what's the distance? 750 miles. So is paddleboard the the strangest craft that people have constructed? It's certainly the most dangerous. The guy claims that he's done stand-up paddleboard for over 30 hours before without peeling over. So that's... Oh, I thought you meant total, like he's only ever paddleboarded for 30 total hours over the course of his entire life. Yeah, no, he's actually never been on a paddleboard. He's watched a lot of YouTube videos, though. I'm sure he'll be fine. This is just the race for amateurs. Yeah. Luke Burbank, thanks for telling us about it. And it's not too late to enter, you guys. The DPD catamaran. I could see it. A seal chariot. <laughs> Perfect. We'll talk about it over cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our increasingly world-famous history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1904, a great American author was born, and this coming week, a little over 50 years later, he published his masterpiece. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. One of the classics of literature began with a random list of words. It was the late 1950s, and a guy named William Spaulding had just finished reading an article in Life magazine by one John Hersey. In it, Hersey grappled with a big problem, why so many kids found it so hard to learn to read. His conclusion? Kids were bored. The Dick and Jane readers most schools use lacked, you know, an interesting plot or exciting illustrations. Get kids involved in a story, Hersey reasoned, and they'd get into reading, quick. This argument caught Spalding's attention because he happened to be the director of the educational wing of the book publisher Houghton Mifflin, and it gave him an idea. He wrote up a list of a few hundred super easy words and handed it over to none other than Theodore Geisel, AKA Dr. Seuss. His challenge to the good doctor? Tell a gripping first grade level tale using those words and nothing else. Seuss figured that'd be easy. He figured wrong. It took months of trying to fashion a story before he finally decided to pair two words on the list that rhymed, cat and hat. That gave him a title and a character. Look, a cat in a hat. You will note, I am neat. Wiped my feet on the mat. 
The Cat in the Hat was a hit, selling a million copies after only three years in print. And despite using a vocabulary of just 236 words, Seuss managed to pack it with some pretty adult ideas. He once said the priggish goldfish who warns of disaster was his version of Cotton Mather, one of the main supporters of the Salem Witch Trials. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am speaking with Bill Wren. He is bar supervisor at Cafe La Rue in La Jolla, California. That is the city where Dr. Seuss lived. And first of all, Bill, it's my understanding Dr. Seuss wrote the cat in the hat, at least in part, in your bar? Yep, in the old whaling bar, which is uh, now Cafe La Rue. It wasn't called Cafe La Rue at the time? No, it was an old, dark bar. Uh, Everybody kind of went to hang out there. Good place to get away. I just don't think of Dr. Seuss hanging around in dark bars. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, we actually we have a plaque above uh, Booth 11 that he used to sit in and do his writing. Do you happen to know what drink he liked to drink? I heard that he liked dirty martinis, but I was speaking with one of, uh, one of the old servers here, and he said that he would just drink wine. Well, that's, that's kind of simple, like this book. <laughs> so you heard the history. What drink did this inspire you to uh, come up with? Well, we called it the Thing 2 Martini, and it's basically a passion fruit lemonade martini. So the Thing 2 Martini, that would be yeah. like Thing 1 and Thing 2. Those are the, the cat in the hat's helpers with the red pajamas and the blue hair. <laughs> so what's in the Thing 2 Martini? Uh, we have passion fruit vodka, lemon juice, and grenadine with a blue sugared rim and a white chocolate swirl. Oh, so it's got the colors of the Thing characters, blue, red, and white. Yeah. Are they layered, I guess? Kind of? uh, it's not layered, no. It's, so it's uh, just blue sugar around the rim, swirl around the white chocolate on the inside, pour the martini in it. Just pour in the red mixture of vodka, lemon, and grenadine. Absolutely. As simple as you're making it sound, it's a little more complicated. I mean, why not do a martini for this? It's kind of like the three-letter word of cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> It's just gin in a glass. Gin in a glass. Gin is actually a a, a simple three-letter word (laughs) that weirdly doesn't figure in the cat in the hat. Bill Wren of Cafe LaRue in La Jolla, California, which, by the way, Brendan, back when it was called the Whaling Bar, Mm -hmm. not only was Dr. Seuss a regular, but also Raymond Chandler. Oh, man. Amazing, right? I'd love to read a collaboration between those guys. (laughs) Oh, me too. Green eggs and dames. (laughs) It's a hit. Mm -hmm. People, our drink recipes are appropriate reading for kids 21 and over. They're at dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, sipped a colorful cocktail. All this party lacks are some tunes. And here with that is musician Alice Baltro, who records under the name Lady Lamb. She wrote most of her passionate first album when she was a teen, recording late at night in a video store where she worked in Maine. Her new album, called After, came out this week to critical acclaim. Here she is with the playlist. Hi, this is Ali Spaltro of the band Lady Lamb, and I was inspired for my dinner party to be um, a sort of intimate, casual dinner party with my best friend named Shervin. He and I tend to like to eat and make the premise of our dinners music. So the first track that I would play for my dinner party would be um, Eat at Home by Paul and Linda McCartney. Come on, little lady, lady, let's eat at home. So this is a pretty literal choice, of course, but I think this is a fun song that would play while my uh, best friend is walking through the door. I'm holding my burrito and I'm singing it and shoulder shrugging to it, you know? Not really eating, but just kind of enjoying the song. This is a really intimate song, the fact that Paul and Linda, you know, were together when they made this this album. It's intimate, but it's really lighthearted. I love Linda's voice. And um, I think Sherman would really like this song. (laughs) The second song would be Texas Flood by Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble from the 1983 album Texas Flood. I was basically spoon-fed Stevie Ray Vaughan from the time I was born by my dad and was defiant about him for a while just based on trying to be rebellious. 
But as I grew up, I began to become obsessed with Stevie Ray Vaughan. He's, in my opinion, one of the best blues guitarists ever. This song was originally written um, by a guy named Larry Davis um, in 1958, not to be confused with Larry David, um, but it was a blues standard and Stevie kind of made it this guitar solo heavy song. Somewhere in the middle of the song, around like three and a half minutes, he starts just bending strings, two or three strings at a time. and. It's just the kind of music that while you're listening to it, you're kind of wincing with the music in a way, or you're, you're kind of scrunching your face and just moving with it. It's just that kind of, oh, oh, you know, it hurts so good. So my third uh, dinner party track will be going in a very different direction. This is Sheryl Crow's If It Makes You Happy. My best friend Sherman, he is, I guess, basically an honorary girlfriend. You know, we spent a lot of time together singing songs very loudly. We are both interested in fist-pumping anthemic songs, and I would surprise him by putting this song on third, and he'd be very excited. I belong. I don't think I've ever gotten a negative response by putting this song on. Everyone just gets pumped to hear it. How can you not sing along to this? It's so much fun. It's like the, in order to sing along with this song, you have to actually physically open up your chest to hit these notes. And it's almost like you're opening up your, your heart. I know it sounds so silly, um, but the physical act of singing this chorus just makes you happy. The song of mine that I would play at my dinner party would be the song Billions of Eyes. I wouldn't feel weird putting this on for my friend because he's used to it. He's used to me asking for his opinion. The song is about how much of a homebody I am and how when I'm home I yearn to be out on the road and when I'm on the road I miss home a lot. So the song is really about how to have both at the same time and how to appreciate the one that you are presently experiencing. But the kitchen in this new place has a window where you can grow basil on the sill. Maybe you can call your neighbors by name Ali Spaltro, a.k.a. Lady Lamb. Her new album is called After, and she's on tour now hopefully with Shervin by her side. Aw, people, we're going to take a break, but coming up, actor Dev Patel explains why he dislikes technology and loves Dame Maggie Smith, and humorist Dave Barry offers etiquette advice we do not advise you take. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, author Tanya James reads from her new novel, and I find out how to decide which mustards cut the mustard. Mm. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's actor Dev Patel. He is best known for playing the young Indian hero in the Oscar-winning movie Slumdog Millionaire, for which he earned a slew of awards. He was also a regular on HBO's series The Newsroom. And this week, I talked to him about the sci-fi action flick Chappie, in which he stars alongside Hugh Jackman. Hmm. The movie's directed by Neil Blomkamp, who also made District 9. Patel plays a kind computer whiz who's helped design a squad of robot police officers that patrol Johannesburg, one of which he decides to give a human-like consciousness. Here's a clip in which he pitches the idea to his boss, played by Sigourney Weaver. The world's first proper, full artificial intelligence. This is a computer system that might be smarter than a human. I could, I, I could show it a piece of art, and, 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 and the stainless being could judge that art. <laughs> it, could, it could decide if it liked it. It could write music and, and, and poetry. <laughs> Stop, please, Dion. Do you realize you just came to the CEO of a publicly traded weapons corporation and pitched a robot that can write poems? 
and Dev Patel, welcome. Cool. Uh, I picked that clip because it shows off your performance and some of the themes of the movie, but I should note it, it's not representative of the rest of the film in the sense that it's calm, that scene. This it's is, a very somber scene, yeah. This is a hyperactive <laughs> film. There are big, fast action scenes. There are characters. They're all either stressed out or pumped up on adrenaline. What is Neil Blomkamp doing on set to create that atmosphere? I mean, the, the film is pretty high octane. It's bonkers in every way. It's a, it's a mashup of quite a few, you know, emotions and genres. And we, we just, you know, come into the ring and put our all into it, really. Although I will say there was a massive product placement for Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, yeah. I have a feeling that it was flowing heavily on the set, perhaps. <laughs> oh, man. I, there, there is a scene where my character's caning Red Bull whilst he's trying to crack this code. And it was real Red Bull, and I was, I had the, I had the shakes afterward. It's crazy. It just carried you through the rest of the film. Exactly the residual effect. Uh, you, you've said you're kind of a luddite for a young guy in the 21st century. You've said this in the past. You don't have an iPhone, is my understanding. You don't like texting. Yeah. Like a lot of Blomkamp's films, though, this movie is kind of about humanity fusing with technology. Yeah. Literally. In fact, technology is kind of your character's savior. How do you feel about that message? I, for me, it's like technology is wonderful and, uh, you know, it's done so much. But at the same time, I think it's a great shame you sit at a dinner table and people are so absorbed with their millions of apps or, you know, you go to a music concert and everyone's watching it through their three-inch iPhone screen instead of, you know, yeah. experiencing the beauty in front of them. But Neil is uh, into everything technology and he... Sure. His argument is that the next step in evolution will be machines. You know, they will be a valid life form. And, you know, soon every inanimate object from the table in front of me to my shoes will be interactive, you know? Sure. Intimately interactive. His last movie, Elysium, a human's actually kind of transplanted with a mechanical exoskeleton. You know? Yeah, exoskeleton. That's pretty cool. I think they're kind of testing that in the army and military right now, but that's a incredible concept to have a, you know, a mechanic skeleton outside your body that can help you lift, run faster, take the pressure off your joints and your muscles. I think that's really cool. So you'd say so you'd get an exoskeleton implanted in your body? but you won't yeah but not an iphone <laughs> that's hypocrite that's very interesting all right you happen to be in another movie that's opening this week the second best exotic marigold hotel and your co-stars are only the biggest stars in british film and theater dame judy dench is in this thing maggie smith yeah what if any advice did you get from these legends they weren't really um they weren't really on set like like hey you little boy listen to me now it wasn't <laughs> they didn't take you on their knee yeah it wasn't as grandiose or obtuse as that it was i kind of just being in the presence of such titans the, the what was the takeaway i guess you that? know the the curiosity they have such a curiosity despite their ages and despite their experience being in front of a camera gazillions of times they're all so curious you know the questions they ask and, you know, I spent most of my screen time with Dame Maggie Smith, and she is just the consistency with what she... She's a scene stealer, you know. I'm the kind of guy that's spewing out lines a million miles per hour, and she comes in and just says one line and steals, you know, steals a <laughs> know. scene. And You're like, damn you, Smith. And no, she's wonderful and she's so funny. And we're in, we're in India, and it's baking hot, and, you know, it's exhausting. And they just, they're like machines. It's, it's great. <laughs> Um, all right, we have a couple of questions that we ask everyone on this show. Sure. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Um, how was it filming Last Airbender? <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, The Last Airbender was kind of a martial arts fantasy movie you did right after Slumdog Millionaire, yeah. which actually did very well at the box office, but was pilloried by critics. Exactly. I can't even imagine what that was like, coming off something as beloved as Slumdog and into the reception the yeah. bad film got. Well, it's interesting because Slumdog... You know, I worked incredibly hard for it, you know, um, but there was still something inside of me that felt not worthy of walking these red carpets at the Oscars. For someone who's, you know, I don't know if I was 18 when the film came out, you want to be able to, and it's your first movie, you want to be able to test the waters, but as an actor, every risk you take is public. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, I was getting very stereotypical type of roles, quite similar to Slumdog, and this, this role came in. I'm crazy about martial arts. I love this cartoon. Yeah. You know, Bruce Lee was my icon. It, on paper, seemed incredible, but I was very overwhelmed. And, you know, like the craft service budget on this movie was a budget of the entire film of Slumdog, probably. <laughs> you know, you kind of felt very small and powerless in this big kind of machine, this corporate machine. 
it was very humbling, not that I'd gotten big-headed, I hope. Maybe on some level it's a good thing to have happened, that, to realize how fleeting approval can be. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's exciting coming back with a film like Chappie because when I read the role, I wasn't going to be drowned in effects and, like, special effects makeup. I kind of could come in and act, you know? Mm. He's kind of the emotional grounding to the movie in a way. You know, I'm not running around with guns and things are not exploding around me. I'm quite the... Well, I, I think you have to take that back. There's an uh, ending yeah. sequence. There's, there's quite a, a number of explosions. The ending sequence is bonkers, yeah. Uh, the second question is sort of the flip of this. Tell us something we don't know. Well, something a lot of people don't know about the film is that Mr. Hugh Jackman chose his own hairstyle, the legendary mullet. I think he's brought it into 2015 in big style. It is a ridiculous <laughs> mullet. Hugh Jackman chose that for himself willingly. Yeah, him and Neil sat down and they're like, how can we make this guy as eccentric and weird as possible? But ironically, he still eclipses every other male actor on set. The women are just... You know, popping ovaries everywhere. <laughs> Despite the mullet, he's still Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Damn it. Actor Dev Patel, he stars in the high-speed sci-fi action flick Chappie and the sweet, gentle comedy The Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. One's about the future and the other has Richard Gere. You take your pick. They both open <laughs> this weekend. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, the other day I was flipping through the latest issue of Bon Appetit magazine, as I do. Yes, you do. When two words jumped out at me. Mm, bon and Appetit. No. But Very they large. Were, but they were French the words. Uh, oh. Mustard sommelier. Uh-huh. Actually, I was more like, huh? <laughs> but <laughs> it turns out the classic French mustard brand Mai opened up a store in Manhattan recently. Uh. They sell dozens of mustard varieties there, and to help people decide what to pair them with, they hired a mustard sommelier. Well, it was bound to happen sometime. Her name is Perrette <laughs> Hutner, and when I met with her, I asked, is being a mustard sommelier a real thing? Well, this is a position you can only have with, with Mai, and I worked for us all around the world. So I've actually worked in the boutique in Paris and London and Dijon and had a chance to... Um, go to the factory in Chevigny and see how the products were being made and look at the recipes and interact with clients all over the world. So what were your mustard qualifications or were you just a passionate enemy of ketchup? Well, it's... <laughs> no, I, I mean, we like all condiments, so I, I do like ketchup as well, but mustard is obviously my favorite. Um, I was always a passionate home cook, mm -hmm. and uh, when this position became available, loved my and had been to the store in Paris and had used the brand for years and um, was adamant that the position not go to anyone else. <laughs> what, can you just tell us what mustard is? Remind us. Well, to, to Americans, it would be a condiment. It comes from the mustard seed, and it can come in a variety of different flavors, textures, and types. And what about my mustard? Is it a come from a specific region, a specific tradition? Yes. So my is a French brand from 1747, so our mustard is very particular. It is uh, from the Dijon region of France, and it refers to uh, not only the type of seeds that are used in that region, but also the process behind it. Some of our mustard seeds are cut, some are ground, just depending on the intensity of the flavor. And they are either mixed with vinegar or white wine, depending on the mustard, and then other ingredients are added in. Okay, and so how many mustards do we have here? We have approximately 20 in the boutique, four that are the mustards on tap, and then we also have a different variety of jarred mustards. Do you guys have little mustard packets here? No. <laughs> We have small 100 milliliter jars. All right. Okay. So let's look at these mustards on tap. Let's start with the white wine. That's the classic. Yeah. So that is the most classic Dijon mustard. It's uh, quite hot. And it is uh, the one that when you think of Dijon mustard really resonates with people. So that's what they usually associate with that term. All right. So let's taste this. Okay. I'm looking at like a tongue depressor. <laughs> I mean, it's much. I'm oh, sorry. It's a wooden spoon. And then what, how, what, what am I thinking about when I'm tasting this? Well, what you first want to speak about is the smell, then the taste, the texture as well. It all kind of defines the experience for you. And we don't necessarily have a particular language that is mustard only. So we borrow from wine, we borrow from perfume and all of the things that use all of the senses in terms of smell and taste um, to really explain it. So white wine as you know from tasting it, has a very long flavor for regression. Starts off a bit salty and it kind of gets a little hotter and a little hotter until it builds. Yeah. I felt the build. So that to me was heat 
and then it turned creamy towards the end, and then there's like a lingering kind of saline quality. Yes, I would say that's actually a very apt description. Oh, I thank you. I'm on my way to becoming a mustard sommelier. All right, so now what's this next mustard? So uh, this is our Chablis white wine black truffle mustard. So it's extremely rich, extremely decadent. So it works well as a pairing, but my favorite use for it is actually as an ingredient. Ready? We're going to taste this? All right. That tastes, I could eat that just like a soup, I think. One of my, my favorite things to do with it is actually to add it into mashed potatoes or potatoes au gratin. Okay. So it's great as an additional ingredient. It just adds a lot of dimension, a lot of flavor, and it um, really elevates your, your potatoes to a different level. And at $45 an ounce, that's, you might only be able to afford... Okay, 4.4 ounces. You might only be able to afford potatoes at that point for that meal. It's very rich, so you you do only need a small amount of truffle. Would that be okay to use on a hot dog? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, all right. You also have all these other flavors in jars. Yes, one of the ones I think that immediately catches your eye is the Dijon blackcurrant liqueur. Blackcurrant comes from the the region of of Dijon as well, so mustard, gingerbread, and uh, blackcurrant all come from Dijon. So, of course, we have a mustard with it, uh, which is a really beautiful kind of deep rose color. Uh, We also have a saffron and creme de signy, which is a really beautiful bright orange. And what is creme de signy? It's a, almost like a creme fraiche or a sour cream. Okay. The creme de signe does give a real creaminess to it, um, but what you taste is uh, primarily saffron. Um, there's very little heat to it, and it's um, a very polarizing mustard. I feel like I need to try it, though. You do need to try it, yes. It's one of the more unusual ones that we carry. Mm, definitely saffrony. I can see that almost with, like, uh, like mussels or something like that. Yes. I think this in particular works really well with fish. All right. Well, I have a question about all of these mustards. Uh, It's a personal question. I spill things on my clothes all the time, and mustard is really, really hard to wash out. Do you have any strategies for fighting mustard stains? I would say um, be perhaps a more careful eater. (laughs) That's out. (laughs) That I've tried. I guess I could wear a mustard-colored shirt. Yes. Corette Hutner. You can find her at the My Mustard Boutique in Manhattan. And Brendan, I really like that piece because I got to hear the phrase mustards on tap. <laughs> and, uh, and now mm-hmm. I know why you wear mustard-colored clothes to baseball games. It's true. Great news. And wine-colored shirts on the weekends. And now, time to eavesdrop. Indian-American novelist Tanya James has won acclaim for fiction that spans continents and takes bold, imaginative leaps. Her new novel, about the ivory trade in India, is no exception. Today we overhear an excerpt. We should note it includes intense scenes that may disturb some listeners. This is Tanya James. I have a new novel out called The Tusk That Did the Damage. It follows three different characters, a poacher, a filmmaker, and a wild rogue elephant who's known around town as the gravedigger. And I'm going to read from the opening of the novel, which follows the perspective of the gravedigger. Just so you know, a tusker is a male elephant with tusks. He would come to be called the gravedigger. There would be other names, the master executioner, the jackfruit freak the great Surya Mangalam Shriganeshan. In his earliest days, his name was a sound only his kin could make in the hollows of their throats, and somewhere in his head, fathoms deep, he kept it close. Other memories he kept, running through his mother's legs, toddling in and out of her footprints. He remembered his mother taking him onto her back before launching herself from the bank. In this way, their clan would cross an isle of hills and lofted trunks. As they roamed, the tusker brought up the back of the clan, but if a man were scented somewhere in the vicinity, the cows dropped their doings and circled the two tuskers. They knew what man was after. They offered their rumps instead. They had walked the same routes for years, this clan, but the gravedigger hadn't learned all there was to learn. His trunk, being stout and clumsy, couldn't sense what his mother's could sense. The sudden stillness in the rhythm of things. The peril in the air. The gravedigger staggered, caught in a carousel of legs and screaming. 
The man in the tree was pointing a long-snouted gun. Another blast. The tusker bellowed deep and doomed. The gravedigger whirled in search of his mother, and when at last he caught her scent, he found her roaring in the face of the gunman who aimed into her mouth and shot. The hole of her sank with a thud that traveled the earth and ran like a current into the tender slabs of the gravedigger's souls. He went to her. He touched her warm trunk, stretched straight but slack. He touched its ridges and folds, and the very tip, a single empty finger with which she had pinched him a gooseberry not two hours before. No air from her nostril, no light in the eye. All around the stink of gunmetal and smoke. He watched as two men climbed over the old tusker's face. They chiseled at one side of a tusk and knocked a hammer on the other side, some chipping, some knocking, until they gently tipped the tusk from the root. And then they noticed the gravedigger. One man strode toward the gravedigger. He was holding a knife. With every step, the world seemed to tighten. He pressed himself against his mother's still warm belly and waited to die. The man walked past the gravedigger, around his mother's flank. The gravedigger could not see what the man was doing. At last the man rounded her body again and walked away, back to his people. A severed tail flicked from his fist, beckoning. Tanya James, reading from her novel, The Tusk That Did the Damage. It comes out this week. That excerpt was edited for time. It's powerful work. It is. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break. Coming up, we learn about a group of great American musicians you've been listening to all your life, whether you know it or not, when the Dinner Party Download continues. Best-selling authors Sherman Alexie and Jess Walter host A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment, a podcast discussing the triumphs and struggles of writing. Check out A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment at infiniteguest.org or wherever you download your podcasts. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song from Courtney Barnett. And coming up, we learn about the secret ingredient of countless rock and roll hits. And we don't mean Benzedrine. No. <laughs> but before we get to that, let's explore the secret ingredient of civil society. I'm speaking, of course, about our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is humorist Dave Barry. For 22 years, he penned a newspaper column that earned him a Pulitzer Prize. Since ending that in 2005, he's busied himself with writing best-selling novels, literary collaborations, and essay collections. His five billionth example of the latter came out this week. It is called <laughs> Live Right and Find Happiness, Although Beer is Much Faster, Life Lessons and Other Ravings from Dave Barry. And Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. Are you happy right now? So, yes, yeah, so happy. <laughs> See, it <laughs> well, worked. that's great. So it, it is clear from the title. This is supposedly about finding happiness, this book. Well, can I just clarify? And you really got it right. It's my two billionth essay class. I just write a, you know, I write a series of essays, and I think, yeah, these are pretty funny, and I send them in, yeah. and then they want a theme. So, and that's, this became the theme of this one. So the happiness angle was an afterthought, is what you're saying. Don't great. ask so there's, me explain you it. You just undermined all our happiness questions. No, no, it's about happiness. Well, sort of, in a well, you know, weird way. Well, let me ask you this. For a lot of people, happiness would involve not working, and clearly, you can't stop yourself. <laughs> or you, I thought you were going to go to like, and you clearly figured out a way not to do anything useful with your life, <laughs> nothing productive. It's almost like radio in that respect. You oh, sit no. Around, you know, oh. No, yeah, but yeah, I, I can't remember what the question was. The uh, question was, honestly, like what gets you to the desk every day? Oh, Because oh. this does require some work, I'm assuming. Well, I enjoy it. That's really the truth. I, uh, I work at home. I live in Miami, and I walk out to the, walk across the patio. You're too scared to drive. I don't drive home. anywhere. Yeah. No, I've never driven. Anyway. What else would you do in Miami? Just stay the hell out of the way of all <laughs> the like, crazies. Yeah, which I go out sometimes two, three in the morning when the gunfire dies down. It's like <laughs> it gets, just gets a little quiet. No, it's not. You know, I, my tourism promotion slogan for Miami, don't you? Okay, I'll tell you. Yeah, let's hear it. Come back to Miami. We weren't shooting at you. It's much, <laughs> it's right. much calmer down yeah. there than it used to be. We don't have 
when I first moved there, which was in the in the mid '80s, yeah. this is literally true. The first time I ever got in a rental car at Miami International Airport and and started driving, I passed a car with holes in the side of it. And I said, what was that? And they go, those are bullet holes. And I thought, no, it's got to be the only car in Miami. Like they said, no, there's there's more than one. You see them everywhere. No, I haven't seen one in years. Yeah. And I, to be honest, I miss them a little bit. The question is, how did they hear you from the trunk with your hands tied? Like, I don't. That's oh. the other thing. They, they used to routinely find cars, rental cars returned in Miami International Airport, you know, just left in the yeah. parking lot with bodies in the trunk. What? Hey. Yes, deceased bodies. All right, well, Dave Barry, so one thing to keep yourself happy is to just stay off the streets of Miami, apparently. Right. Let's tell our audience some other things. You ready for these etiquette questions? Yes, far away. All right, here's something from Cobalt in Des Moines, Iowa. Love that name. Cobalt asks, sometimes while using the ATM, I have come to, quote, discover a person behind me, a bit too close for my liking, sort of invading my personal space while I'm carrying out private financial transactions. How does one make a firm yet polite request to keep some distance while using the ATM? Um, this is why I always carry a machete. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, Miami's taught you well, apparently. Exactly. You don't have to make a big deal about the machete, and I'm saying it doesn't have to be you. I see. Let's say instead of using your finger to punch in your your pin, yeah, yeah. you just use the tip of a machete. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you just show that you have. You don't usually with most people don't have to mention it to them. Mm. Just a, a gentle, mild brandish mm-hmm. of the machete, and your problems are going to just v- evaporate <laughs> completely. ATM wise, easy peasy. So uh, there you go, Cobalt in Des Moines, Iowa. That's your advice. Just brandish. I can't believe that anybody in Des Moines would do anything bad to anybody else in Des Moines. I, I just really can't. Des Moines is not – they're not, just being friendly. They're yeah. just being yeah, friendly. Yeah, they're just helping you out. They just want to help you pull the receipt out. Yeah. Don't be so paranoid, Cobalt, but also brandish machete. So this next question comes from Thirsty in Chicago. Thirsty writes, if I see that everyone else at a party is drinking beer, is it gauche to ask for wine in this setting – is it gauche to use the word gauche? Oh, that's it's a, a two-part question. That's a two-parter. Well, uh, first, I mean, my first issue would be what kind of beer? Okay. Uh, because if it's light beer, mm-hmm. not only should you ask for wine, you should spit in their beer. Okay. <laughs> because, because what what happened to this country? That's yeah. all I want to know. Yeah, well, what happened to this country? We were in light is... beer and low-flow toilets, and they came in around the same time. Around the same time, the country went straight to damn hell. But America is going to hell in a low-flowing low, toilet. Low-flowing toilet. <laughs> okay. But um, if it's regular beer, I mean, it's okay. I guess you could still, I would say yes, you can still ask for wine unless okay. it's a sign that says we don't have any wine. But can yes. you use the word gauche in a beer Okay, setting? gauche, that's a good question. Yeah. I'd say after a couple of beers, you can use the word gauche. Yeah, you need to, you need to show <laughs> Just that show them that you're, yeah. you're one of them. You're not yeah. a gauche-saying kind of person that's right. who so won't, con- won't have a beer. Right. And after a few beers, really, you can say anything. Who, na- who cares what you say? They won't care. All right, here's something from Jack in Santa Monica, California. Jack writes... This is amazing. There's a congregant at my church who often wears a Bluetooth earpiece. It hasn't ever rung during Mass, but the optics are weird. Is he expecting a phone call? It seems like bad taste, but am I off base, asked Jack. If not, how should I bring this up? Okay, Jack may not be aware of this. (laughs) Okay. Okay, this is the year 2015. If God... Wants to talk to somebody, yes. <laughs> he goes through the Bluetooth. That's now. how it's going. And Jack's not weird. the Pope himself. Wow. It's a small one, the Pope. But if yeah. you look closely, yeah, the, the God may have, God ever, may have been calling Jack all this right. time, and he can't. Get he doesn't it. have the tech to receive the message. Jesus He's, had long hair. You can't see his ears oh. in most pictures. Wow! That's but true. think about what what might have been under there. Is a, a little bit of a blue light. A little, well, it would have been you know it would have been a primitive. <laughs> One. I'm just trying to wonder why this congregant needed his hands free. Like, why couldn't he just... He's praying. Have... His hands are taking a praying. <laughs> you all Bluetooth? kidding aside. Do you no. wear Bluetooth? God, no. Oh, no. no. And I, I thought that went out. I thought that was really 2004, hmm. the Bluetooth thing. Yeah. It was such a moment in time. Come on. I can't believe God would want to talk to those people over he, other people. He, I he think, does it, you know what? He does it because he's nice because he's God. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you're kind of being a geek right now, but you know what? I still have something to say to you. I was hoping God would text, but okay. <laughs> okay. Dave Barry, <laughs> we're out of time. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave and for sharing the secret of happiness somewhere in there, I think. It's why I'm here. I'm here to help people. Dave Barry's new book is called Live Right and Find Happiness, although beer is much faster. And folks, if you've got an etiquette question, sometimes we even give them serious answers. Send them in to us. You'll find the address at dinnerpartydownload.org. Click contact. You 
you've heard The Wrecking Crew, but if you're like most folks, you have no idea who they are, and that was the point. The crew were a group of musicians for hire based in L.A. in the 1960s who played on countless pop hits, movie soundtracks, and TV theme songs. They did it for money and left the glory to the bands and singers on whose behalf they were paid to record. This week, a new documentary called The Wrecking Crew Hits Theaters. It was directed by Denny Tedesco, son of Tommy Tedesco, who was one of the group's guitarists. When we spoke this week, I first asked him to list just a few of the tunes The Wrecking Crew played on. The Ronettes, Be My Baby. Beach Boys, Good Vibrations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitation. Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made for Walking. You keep saying you got something for me. The Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Frank Sinatra, Strangers in the Night. You know what? I think I'm going to stop you there because we could just dedicate a 10-hour show to all the hits the Wrecking Crew performed on. Can we just get get it out of the way? Where did the name the Wrecking Crew come from? I think it was coined by Hal Blaine. Hal Blaine, who was one of the drummers in the crew. Yeah. Hal used to tell the story about how the older guys in the studios when in the early 60s, you know, the more established uh, studio players, they were talking about my father and Hal and all the rest of them, how these guys were going to wreck the business playing rock and roll. Because before that, there were studio musicians, but they were doing more classical and kind of jazz stuff. Yeah. And they, some of them were unwilling to kind of play the rock and roll stuff the new generation of producers wanted them to play. Here's the thing is Los Angeles was an established town for, you know, they had studios, they had, you know, labels, they had everything. But at the beginning, you know, when they're doing the rock and roll dates, some of these dates were like non-union. Some of them were maybe cash dates, maybe the lower budget demos. And so the older guys, the established guys, they probably shy away from it. You know, they got a job doing a movie. They're going to shy away from the record date that's maybe not, you know, maybe paying as much. Well, the younger guys, this is their chance to get in. You know, so that's how they broke in. You start doing those dates and all of a sudden those dates become real records. And those are the guys that take over. And by dates, you mean sessions where the players perform for producer. They call them recording dates. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened, right? Your father and about 15 to 20 other younger players ended up becoming the go-to musicians for this new generation of rock and roll producers. Um, Some call them the tightest, greatest rock and roll unit ever assembled. But why did rock and roll bands need studio musicians in the first place? Well, L.A., you've got to realize rock and roll in 1960 is really young. It's at its infancy still. And a lot of the labels aren't sure if it's really, you know, it's like another music. Is it really going to stay or is it going to be, you know, pushed away? And so they weren't trusting the actual bands to record these things because, you know, you only had one track, you know. So you bring in a a band, let's say, that's done a, a song, well, they got to get in and out of that studio for th- in three hours. So the yeah. labels didn't want to trust these guys with studio time, so they would hire uh, studio musicians who could come in, knock out three or four songs in three hours. So sometimes the bands would just sing on the songs and they have the, the session players uh, play and the guys would sing. But you got to realize in 1960, like Glenn Campbell said, he says, who was one of the great session players, he said, I was playing with Michael Jordan in that room, but everybody in that room was a Michael Jordan. You had to nail it. You had to get in and get out in three hours. Well, so let's talk about some of the names. Glenn Campbell's one of the most famous Wrecking Crew members. Sure. Other other ones that kind of crossed over, Dr. John, Leon Russell. But uh, one of the great parts of this movie is meeting some of the other people, including your father. So can you can you just list some of those sure. other Sure. Uh, my father was Tommy Tedesco, who's a guitar player. There was uh, Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer were the great drummers of the time. Uh, bass players, you had Lyle Ritz, Joe Osborne, Carol Kay, the only woman of the group. Uh, piano, you had, like you said, Leon Russell, Al DeLore, Don Randy. Um, you know, there was, I would say, 15 to 20 different musicians doing the rock and roll stuff in the early 60s. So as you touched upon before, one of the key things the Wrecking Crew brought to a studio production was efficiency, right? So yeah. One example of this is uh, with The Birds. You talk about this in the movie. What was the song that the Wrecking Crew did? Well, it was Mr. Tambourine Man was one session, and it was Terry Meltzer was the producer. He got the job. 
to do this for Columbia. And he said to the guys, the birds, he said, listen, I'll use Roger McGuinn on guitar and he could sing the, uh, the lead. But he said, you guys could do the backup vocals. And they were very upset about it. But he said, listen, my job is to get in and get it. I got to get a hit. Yeah. If I go way over budget, we're never coming back, guys. So he basically was, you know, he got in and he brought in Leon Russell on piano, uh, Larry Nectar on bass, Hal Blaine on drums, uh, Bill Pittman and Jerry Cole on guitars, and then Roger sang and played. And he said, yeah. we did the A side and the B side. Don't forget they're 45s at this point. He said that we did the A side yeah. and the B side in three hours. Now, when we had to go do Turn, 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 their next number one hit, it took 77 takes. Because they didn't use studio musicians, they used the actual birds. Right. So, along with efficiency, or even more important than efficiency, some would say, the Wrecking Crew brought their own musical magic to each kind of production, because often they were embellishing what was given to them. Oh, absolutely. You didn't have to... Those guys... It's not like they were just reading music. You know, my father said... You know, that's not music, you know, on paper. Music is it's, it's what you put into it. So these guys sometimes would, you know, have to come up with their own parts or they, you know, they hear something, they start playing. And your movie reveals so many instances where that's the case. Everything from the iconic sax solo and the Pink Panther soundtrack to um, Carol Kay did so many signature riffs. Well, what was one of them? Carol Kay's example is like Wichita Lineman. You know, she that's did right. that opening bass line. You know, it, it's their job to create. You know, someone yeah. said, well, should they have gotten paid more? No. that's they, they. You don't hold back on creativity. You go to work, you go, boy, this would be good. What do you think of this? And she started doing, you know, Wichita alignment. And they said, great, hold, you know, keep it going. That's what they were there for. My father said, listen, he, someone, someone asked him about, should you have been paid more because you helped with arrangements or you did certain solos or did whatever? He said, no. He said, I went to work, and he said, I made hundreds of hits, but I made thousands of bombs. I never gave anybody their money back. <laughs> Denny Tedesco, his documentary The Wrecking Crew, hits theaters in select cities next week. His father, Tommy, is playing guitar in this track, by the way, by the Marquettes. Oh, nice. And Rico, it took Denny years to make the movie. One of the holdups was the Wrecking Crew played on so many hit songs that securing the rights to them all cost a small fortune. So he had to raise gobs of money. Of course. They were so good, people almost didn't get to know they were so good. Yeah. That's crazy. Let's hope that never happens to us. Or wait a second, maybe we want that. Either way, folks, that's the dinner party (laughs) download for this week. But don't despair. You notice the word download in our name? That's because we started as a podcast. And guess what? We still are one. It's true. You can find tons of our episodes for free on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a review. It only takes a second, and it does a lot for us. Yes, I hereby give a five-star review to Jackson Musker, our producer. Seconded. Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal, our interns. Engineering assistance was provided by Chris Clark and Jeff Peters this week. Peter Clowney is our executive producer, and welcome to Christina Lopez, our brand new associate digital producer. Yes, make her job easier and follow us on Instagram or Twitter, please. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Courtney Barnett lives in Australia, writes great songs, and has a new album coming out in a couple weeks. Here's a track from it called Pedestrian at Best. Bon appétit.
Hi, I'm Alex Thornwilder. And I'm Sydney Sewell. And we're known as the recording crew. We normally perform Brendan and Rico's voices, but this week the check bounced, so... Oh, hey, hey, wait a sec. Here's your cash. Sorry, okay? In that case, I'm Brendan. And I'm Rico. Thanks for listening. Now don't you ever miss a payment, Mr. Producer! I said I'm sorry.